The Ties That Bind Stanley first encountered the miseries of the African interior at the age of 30, when the New York Herald sent him to find Livingston somewhere in the mysterious continent. He spent the first part of the journey slogging through a swamp and struggling with malaria, which left him delirious for a week with what he called its insane visions, its frenetic brain throbs and dire sickness. Then the entire expedition narrowly escaped being massacred during a local civil war. After six months of travel, so many men had died or deserted that even after acquiring replacements, Stanley was down to 34 men, barely a quarter the size of the original expedition, and a dangerously small number for traveling through the hostile territory ahead. Stanley was beset by new bouts of fever and depressed by warnings from veteran Arab travelers that he would die if he continued. But one evening, during a break between fevers, he wrote a note to himself by candlelight. I have taken a solemn, enduring oath, an oath to be kept while the least hope of life remains in me, not to be tempted to break the resolution I have formed, never to give up the search until I find Livingston alive or find his dead body. No living man or living men shall stop me. Only death can prevent me. But death, not even this. I shall not die. I will not die. I cannot die. Even allowing for the fevers and insane visions, it's hard to imagine that Stanley really believed he or his note had any sway over death. But the act of writing it was part of a strategy to conserve willpower that he used over and over with great success. Pre-commitment. The essence of the strategy is to lock yourself into a virtuous path. You recognize that you'll face terrible temptations to stray from the path and that your willpower will weaken. So you make it impossible or somehow unthinkably disgraceful or sinful to leave the path. Pre-commitment is what Odysseus and his men used to get past the deadly songs of the sirens. He had himself lashed to the mast with orders not to be untied, no matter how much he pleaded to be freed to go to the sirens. His men used a different form of pre-commitment by plugging their ears so they couldn't hear the sirens' songs. They prevented themselves from being tempted at all, which is generally the safer of the two approaches. If you want to be sure you don't gamble at a casino, you're better off staying out of it rather than strolling past the tables and counting on your friends to stop you from placing a bet. Better yet is to put your name on a list of people, maintained by casinos in some states, who are not allowed to collect any money if they place winning bets. No one, of course, can anticipate all temptations, especially today. No matter what you do to avoid physical casinos, you're never far from virtual casinos, not to mention all the other enticements perpetually available on the web. But the technology that creates new sins also enables new pre-commitment strategies. A modern Odysseus can try lashing himself to his browser with software that prevents him from hearing or seeing certain websites. A modern Stanley can use the web in the same way that the explorer used the social media of his day. In Stanley's private letters, newspaper dispatches, and public declarations, he repeatedly promised to reach his goals and to behave honorably. And he knew, once he became famous, that any failure would make headlines. Having piously lectured his men about the perils of drunkenness 
and the need to shun sexual temptations in Africa, he knew how conspicuous his own lapses would be. By creating the public persona of himself as Bula Matari, the unyielding breaker of rocks, he forced himself to live up to it. As a result of his oaths and his image, Jeel said, Stanley made it impossible in advance to fail through weakness of will. Today, you don't need to be famous to worry about ruining your image with a lapse in willpower. You can pre-commit yourself to virtue by using social networking tools that will expose your sins, like the Public Humiliation Diet, followed by a writer named Drew Magary. He vowed to weigh himself every day and promptly reveal the results on Twitter, which he did, and lost 60 pounds in five months. If you'd rather put someone else in charge of the humiliation, you could install software from Covenant Eyes that will track your web browsing and then email a list of the sites you visit to anyone you designate in advance, like, say, your boss or your spouse. Or you could sign a commitment contract with Stick.com, a company founded by two Yale economists, Ian Ayers and Dean Carlin, and a graduate student, Jordan Goldberg. It allows you to pick any goal you want, lose weight, stop biting your nails, use fewer fossil fuels, stop calling an X, along with a penalty that will be imposed automatically if you don't reach it. You can monitor yourself or pick a referee to report on your success or failure. The penalty might simply be a round of emails from stick.com to your designated list of supporters, friends and relatives generally, although you could choose some enemies too. But you can also make it financially costly by setting up an automatic payment from your credit card to charity. For an extra incentive, you can assign the payment to an anti-charity, which is a group you'd hate to support, like, say, the presidential library of either Bill Clinton or George W. Bush. Not surprisingly, Stick.com's users seem to be motivated by financial stakes, just as Stanley was. He knew he had to come up with stories to sell newspapers and books, and by the presence of a referee. People who draw up a contract without a financial penalty or a referee succeed only 35% of the time, whereas the ones with a penalty and a ref succeed nearly 80% of the time. And the ones who risk more than $100 do better than those who risk less than $20, at least according to what is reported to stick.com, which doesn't independently verify the results. The true success rate is presumably lower because some referees are reluctant to report failures that would hurt their friends financially. And whatever the success rate, this is obviously a self-selected sample of people already motivated to change, so it's hard to know exactly how much difference the stick.com contracts make. But the efficacy of contracts with monitors and penalties has been independently demonstrated in a more rigorous offline experiment conducted by Carlin and other economists among more than 2,000 smokers in the Philippines who said they wanted to quit. The economists randomly offered some of these Philippine smokers a commitment contract with a bank, which would give them a weekly opportunity to make a deposit into an account paying no interest. It was suggested that the smokers deposit the amount of money ordinarily spent on cigarettes, but the level was strictly voluntary. Each week, they could deposit as much as they wanted or nothing at all, and many of the smokers ended up depositing nothing. At the end of six months, the people would submit to a urine test. If the test found any nicotine in their body, they'd forfeit all the money in the account, which the bank would donate to charity. From a strictly financial standpoint, 
it was hardly an ideal investment strategy for the smokers who accepted the contract. They could have guaranteed themselves a better return simply by putting the money into a regular interest-paying savings account. They not only gave up the chance for interest, but also put themselves at risk of losing it all. And indeed, at the six-month mark, more than half of them did end up flunking the test. The urge to smoke was so strong that a majority of them yielded to it even though they knew they'd lose their money. The good news, though, was that this incentive did help some of the smokers to quit, and they stayed off cigarettes even after passing the six-month test and collecting the money in their account. At that point, the program officially ended, and the subjects didn't expect to be monitored any further. But the researchers wanted to see how lasting the effects were, so they waited another six months until the one-year mark and then surprised all the subjects by asking them to take another urine test. Even though the people no longer had any financial incentive to stay off nicotine, the effects of the program were still evident. Compared with the control group that was offered a different stop-smoking program, the smokers offered a commitment contract were nearly 40% more likely to be nicotine-free after a year. Given an incentive to temporarily restrain their smoking, they were more likely to make a lasting change in their lives. What began as a pre-commitment turned into something permanent and more valuable, a habit. The Brain on Autopilot Imagine, for a moment, that you are Henry Stanley, awaking on a particularly inauspicious morning. You emerge from your tent in the Aturi rainforest. It's dark, of course. It's been dark for four months. Your stomach, long since ruined on previous African expeditions by parasites, recurrent diseases, and massive doses of quinine and other medications, is in even worse shape than usual. You and your men have been reduced to eating berries, roots, fungi, grubs, caterpillars, ants, and slugs, when you're lucky enough to find them. The closest thing to a good meal recently was your donkey, which you shot in order to feed the group. The ravenous men ate every part of it, even fighting over the hooves, and desperately licking blood on the ground before it seeped into the soil. Dozens of people were so crippled from hunger, disease, injuries, and festering sores that they had to be left behind at a spot in the forest that is grimly being referred to as starvation camp. You've taken the healthier ones ahead to look for food, but they've been dropping dead along the way, and there's still no food to be found. You fear you've just gone from one starvation camp to another, and you have begun imagining in morbid detail how you and the other men will collapse and die on the forest floor. You envision the reaction of the forest's insects to each man's death. Before he is cold, a scout will come, then two, then a score, and finally myriads of fierce yellow-bodied scavengers, their heads clad in shining horn mail, and in a few days, there will only remain a flat layer of rags, at one end of which will be a glistening white skull. But as of this morning, you're not dead yet. There's no food in the camp, but at least you're alive. Now that you've arisen and taken care of nature's first call of the morning, what's the next thing to do? For Stanley, this was an easy decision. Shave. As one of his servants in England would later recall, he had often told me that, on his various expeditions, he had made it a rule, always to shave carefully. In the great forest, in starvation camp on the mornings of battle, 
He had never neglected this custom, however great the difficulty. He told me he had often shaved with cold water or with blunt razors. Why would somebody starving to death insist on shaving? When we asked Stanley's biographer about this extreme punctiliousness in the jungle, Jeel said it was a typical manifestation of the man's orderliness. Stanley always tried to keep a neat appearance, with clothes, too, and set great store by the clarity of his handwriting, by the condition of his journals and books, and by the organization of his boxes, Jeel said. He praised the similar neatness of Livingston's arrangements. The creation of order can only have been an antidote to the destructive capacities of nature all around him. Stanley himself offered a similar explanation for his need to shave in the jungle. I always presented as decent an appearance as possible, both for self-discipline and for self-respect. Now, you might think the energy spent shaving in the jungle would be better devoted to looking for food. Wouldn't that exercise of self-control leave you more depleted and less able to exert willpower for something vital? But orderly habits like that can actually improve self-control in the long run by triggering automatic mental processes that don't require much energy. Stanley's belief in the link between external order and inner self-discipline has been confirmed recently in some remarkable studies. In one experiment, a group of participants answered questions sitting in a nice, neat laboratory room, while others sat in the kind of place that inspires parents to shout, clean up your room. The people in the messy room scored lower in self-control on many measures, such as being unwilling to wait a week for a larger sum of money as opposed to taking a smaller sum right away. When offered snacks and drinks, people in the neat lab room chose apples and milk instead of the candy and sugary colas preferred by their peers in the pigsty. In a similar experiment conducted online, some participants answered questions on a clean, well-designed website in which everything was correctly positioned and properly spelled. Others were asked the same questions on a sloppy website with spelling errors and other problems. On the messy site, people were more likely to say that they would gamble rather than take a sure thing, that they would curse and swear, and that they would take an immediate but small reward rather than waiting for a larger but delayed reward. The messy website also elicited lower donations to charity. Charity and generosity have been linked to self-control, partly because self-control is needed to overcome our natural animal selfishness, and partly because, as we'll see later, thinking about others can increase our own self-discipline. The orderly websites, like the neat lab rooms, provided subtle cues guiding people unconsciously toward self-disciplined decisions and actions helping others. By shaving every day, Stanley could benefit from the same sort of orderly cue without having to expend much mental energy. He didn't have to make a conscious decision every morning to shave. Once he had expended the willpower to make it his custom, it became a relatively automatic mental process requiring little or no further willpower. His dutiful behavior at starvation camp was extreme, but it fits a pattern recently observed by Baumeister working together with Denise de Ritter and Katrin Finkenauer two Dutch researchers who led an analysis of a large set of published and unpublished studies on people who scored high in self-control as measured in a personality test. These studies reported experiments involving a variety of behaviors, which the researchers divided into a couple of broad categories, mainly automatic, 
or mainly controlled. The researchers assumed, logically enough, that people with high self-control would tend to exercise it most notably in the behavior they controlled the most. Yet when the results were totaled up in a meta-analysis, just the opposite pattern appeared. The people with high self-control were distinguished by their behaviors that took place more or less automatically. At first, the researchers were baffled. The results suggested that we don't use self-control on controllable behaviors. How could that be? They checked and rechecked their codings and calculations, but that was indeed the finding. Only when they went back to the original studies did they begin to understand what this result meant. And it meant a serious change in how to think about self-control. The behaviors they had coded as automatic tended to be linked to habits, whereas the more controlled sorts of behaviors tended to be unusual or one-time-only actions. Self-control turned out to be most effective when people used it to establish good habits and break bad ones. People with self-control were more likely to regularly use condoms and to avoid habits like smoking, frequent snacking, and heavy drinking. It took willpower to establish patterns of healthy behavior, which was why the people with more willpower were better able to do it. But once the habits were established, life could proceed smoothly, particularly some aspects of life. Another unexpected finding from the meta-analysis was that self-control was particularly helpful for performance in work and school, while the weakest effects were involved with eating and dieting. Although people with relatively high self-control did a little better at controlling their weight, the effect was much weaker than in other aspects of their lives. We'll discuss the reason for that disconnect and the case against dieting in a later chapter. Their self-control yielded moderate benefits in helping them to be well-adjusted emotionally, being happy, having healthy self-esteem, avoiding depression, and to get along with their close friends, lovers, and relatives. But the greatest benefits of their self-control showed up in school and in the workplace, confirming other evidence that successful students and workers tend to rely on good habits. Valedictorians are generally not the sort who stay up studying all night just before the big exam. Instead, they keep up with the work all semester long. Workers who produce steadily over a long period of time tend to be most successful in the long run. Among university professors, for example, getting tenure is a major hurdle and milestone, and at most universities, tenure depends heavily on having published some high-quality original work. One researcher, Bob Boyce, looked into the writing habits of young professors just starting out and tracked them to see how they fared. Not surprisingly, in a job where there is no real boss and no one sets schedules or tells you what to do, these young professors took a variety of approaches. Some would collect information until they were ready and then write a manuscript in a burst of intense energy over perhaps a week or two, possibly including some long days and very late nights. Others plodded along at a steadier pace, trying to write a page or two every day. Others were in between. When Boyce followed up on the group some years later, he found that their paths had diverged sharply. The page-a-day folks had done well and generally gotten tenure. The so-called binge writers fared less well, and many had had their careers cut short. The clear implication was that the best advice for young writers and aspiring professors is Write every day. Use your self-control to form a daily habit and you'll produce more with less effort in the long run.
We often think of willpower in heroic terms, as a single act at a crucial moment in life, sprinting at the end of the marathon, getting through the pain of childbirth, enduring an injury, dealing with a crisis, resisting the seemingly irresistible temptation, beating the impossible deadline. Those are the feats that remain in memory and make the best stories. Even the most critical biographers of Stanley hailed his bursts of literary productivity on deadline. After finishing that awful trek through the Aturi forest and returning to civilization, he quickly produced an international bestseller, In Darkest Africa. By working from six in the morning until eleven at night, he wrote the two-volume, 900-page work in just 50 days, binge writing at its most extreme. But he could never have chronicled the expedition so quickly without the copious notes and orderly records he routinely kept along the way. By making his diary a habit, like his shaving, he kept writing day after day while conserving his willpower for the next nasty surprise in the jungle.